0: Uh, talked a week or two ago about some defections with the faith and I wanted to start actually this has nothing to do with the message yet but I did want to bring it up because it's timely and it does speak or at least references where we're going in part of the message this morning. We talked about Joshua Harris and Rob Bell a week or so ago and they're they're pu- very public defections from the Christian faith. Marty Sampson of Hillsong worship leader and author of songs that Christians around the world Singh also mentioned in a Facebook post a week or more ago that he had also left the Christian faith. Another Christian leader that had just left the Christian faith. He backtracked, removed the post and said, uh, sort of qualified it so that he was in a happy place and, he, and he's not sure he can hold on to the Christian faith. There's an online response to these recent defections by John cooper of the christian band skillet chad barker put a link on this if you're part of the unofficial line and lamb facebook page bell believers i think it's called if you're not want to be you can contact patty Ann, fill out your information on the card turn it into the box and we'll get you hooked up on that you can look for it online too i'm sure it'll come up it's being talked about his letter response is being talked about by christians around the country number of venues but it's an outstanding response to people who have basically been double minded about their faith, they've said, We're believers in Christ, we're Christians at one point. They flip the coin and they turn around, and on a given day, they're not. You know, it reminds me of Joshua's words uh, before the end of his life in Joshua 24, where he says, Choose who you'll serve. Make up your mind. And he tells them, You know, you could go back to the gods of the Amorites or the gods on the other side of the Jordan River before we came in. But whatever you do, it's like just make up your mind and go. You know, don't be double-minded. That comes up this morning too. I want to start with uh, uh, briefly a story about one of my heroes of the faith from the book called Against the Tide by Angus Kinnear. It's the biography of Watchman Nee. Uh, Nee was a was a Christian in China, born in 1903, came to faith. Actually, in China, grew up in a Christian household, actually generations back, two or three generations back. He came to faith as a teenager in high school, came to Christ, and he he was a dynamo as, as a Christian. He studied the Word, he had a great memory, he loved God and God's Word, he loved evangelism, and he was highly fruitful, even as a young man. In the 20s, he took a group of his disciples, his the guys he was mentoring, They went to a little island off the mainland coast of China. And they were preaching the gospel, open air preaching. This was in the 20s and they were getting absolutely no response. And one of the younger guys, one of Ni's protégés, asked one of the islanders, he said, what's the deal? Why don't you guys believe? No one had believed at this point. And he says, we don't need your God. We've got our God. He's Ta Wang. Ta Wang is the great God. He protects us. He gives us rain. He gives us sun. He takes good care of us. We don't need your God. And by the way, His annual feast is coming up in just a few days. And the weather will be perfect because it always is. And and literally, these people knew just from oral and one generation to another, they knew this was true almost 300 years back. Inarguably, they said, our God will do this. And so, this guy, just in the spur of the moment, he says, Jesus is going to rain on your God's parade. Well, Watchman Nee's not there. He hears about it later, and and his first thought is, oh my goodness, what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? So they say, man, we got to pray, because you've just put God's honor on the line to these islanders. So they pray, and as they're praying, this is the phrase that comes to Nee's mind, and he feels like God is sort of gently chiding him. The phrase comes up, where is the God of Elijah? Now you remember Elijah says there's going to be no rain, And then he says, and now it will rain. Where's the God of Elijah? So they pray. And the longer they pray, the more this keeps coming to mind. They start broadcasting to the islanders, God is going to rain on your God's parade. The true and living God is going to rain on your God's parade. So the morning of the parade dawns bright. There's there's no clouds in the sky and they're at breakfast. And they're like, okay, guys, we'll just remind the Lord of what's up. The same phrase comes back, where's the God of Elijah? And they pray and they start hearing the sprinkles and it starts raining and they say lord this is good but we need more you need to make it rain harder and so they do now this is not watchman knees thing but this is real this idol of shiva was washed away in india by floods uh they pray lord would you really make it rain really really hard and it rained so hard that the people carrying the idol fell down it broke the statue So they they got the statue, they ran back inside somebody's house, they repaired the statue, they went back out. It rained so hard it washed them and the statue down and away. Well, they said, you know what, we made a mistake. It's actually 6 o'clock, four days from now. And so the the brothers said the same thing. They said, God, where's the God of Elijah? They prayed, and it did the same thing four days later. And it washed their God away. And you know what happened after that? The islanders believed. All these folks came to faith in Christ. The spectacular demonstration that God was God and Tawang was not. And that's sort of the lead-in to where we're going this morning. We're in the 35th message in the series Heroes and Villains. We've been looking at some unholy kings, a couple holy and good kings, but some unholy ones as well. And we're shifting, if you've got your Bible you want to turn, we're leaving 1 Kings 16. We looked at Ahab last time and it was that summary that No one had sold himself, the text said, to do more evil than Ahab of the kings of Israel before him. And Ahab comes into the story again this morning as we shift to chapter 17 to its opening. And we're going to look at the life of Elijah the prophet. Now I want to say two things as we go in. Sort of key takeaways. The first is this, faithfulness to Christ sometimes requires great courage in the face of great opposition or in standing alone. You know, sometimes for you and I, and probably more often than not, faithfulness is sort of the steady plodding, right? Life's sort of the, the normal seasons of life. We're just quietly going along. But there are times, probably for most, if not all of us, in which faithfulness requires a measure of courage that might not look like the rest of our lives. And that's certainly what we see in the life of Elijah The second thing is this, and this is phrased on the overhead a little differently than on your study sheet. I hope you have one. Uh, Faithfulness needs to be set for the long haul. It's not a sprint sprint to be won. It's a marathon. And and to that end, two things. We want to finish well in the faith. We want to finish well. And Elijah does not finish well. And that's the second point. Now, he's got tremendous Christ-like faithfulness in his courageous stance, but he doesn't finish well. Years ago, we did a message in which we talked about if someone wrote your epitaph, well, you know, on your tombstone, someone walks up, what does it say? What was key about your life? You know, what represents for us success or failure? And for me, one of the key things that would represent failure for me, if I don't finish well in the faith, I want to finish well. Elijah didn't. And that's, that's sort of the, the other side of his faithfulness that we want to take away this morning. Related to that, he didn't finish well, as you'll see, because God didn't do things the way he thought he would. And disappointment and discouragement can sideline us from accepting God's will and therefore not being faithful or finishing faithfully. Finishing well. So if you've got your Bibles, we are in 1 Kings 17.1. If you use a Pew Bible, this is page 299. So you remember Ahab's king, and he's married Jezebel. He's brought in the the worship of Baal and of Asherah. Jezebel has. She's brought in her own priests and prophets. They're on her payroll, basically, in the payroll of Israel through Ahab the king. And Elijah is just introduced on the scene. There's There's no other introduction, he just shows up somewhat dramatically. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, we'll look at a map in a moment, he's from the east side of the Jordan, but in the northern kingdom's province. Elijah shows up and says to Ahab, as the Lord, as Yahweh the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You remember back in Moses' ministry, he he shows up in uh, Pharaoh's court, He confronts Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. That takes some kutsba, doesn't it? And he also basically says, my God is going to take your God down. Your gods. Remember the gods of Egypt. The miracles, the signs in Egypt are about Yahweh demonstrating He's God and your frog gods and all these other gods, they're not really gods at all. That's exactly what Elijah does here. And what you'll see is there's point and counterpoint in the lives of Elijah and Moses. You you keep seeing things that are reminiscent in Elijah's life and ministry that were true in Moses. I'll point a couple of those out. But remember, he stands, now we assume he's in Ahab's court, and he says to Ahab, the God you just made, the God of Israel, remember he's the storm and thunder and rain God, therefore he's the God that gives life, he's not God. And you won't get any rain from Baal until I say so. Because Yahweh's God and Baal's not. Just like me in China. It was sort of this thing, it's going to be a demonstration that Yahweh is God and your God is not. And so initially, right out of the chute, the first thing you learn about Elijah is that he is unafraid to stand before a king in the king's own court and say, God is going to take your God down. Now that requires some courage. That's the first thing we hear about him. Ahab could have done a number of things to him. Whipped, imprisoned, life, you know, anything you think of, the king has the power of life and death. But Elijah marches boldly in and gives the word. We need to think for a minute. I think most of us as Christians are fearful as a given and anxious as a given. I find this, that if most of us have something that we need to reprove or ask another Christian or sister or brother in the faith or sister or brother in a family, if, if we've got something that might not sound really encouraging to them, we're afraid to bring that up to them. It just requires a little bit of courage to do that, right? Much less are you and I able and willing to do what Elijah did, which is to go into courts or places or have conversations with people that we know are going to be uncomfortable and perhaps confrontive. Are we able and willing to muster up a little bit of courage and go in and say what we know God wants us to say? Now, we're not hammering people, but simply are we being faithful, are we willing to be faithful with friends for whom it should be easy or perhaps adversaries when it's not so easy? That's how Elijah starts. Faithfulness along that line. Well, from there, he makes his announcement and from there he goes... To the wilderness. This is uh, verse 2-6. through So he's had his say with Ahab. It says, The word of the Lord came to him. Leave here, turn east. Hide yourself by the brook Kerith, east of the Jordan. Drink from the brook. I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerith that is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Two different things here. One is, this would be a little bit like solitary confinement. As far as we know, Elijah's not married. Lives the life of a bachelor, like many of the prophets did. But he goes from the courts of Ahab and civilized society, and now the, the brook careth, it's in a wasteland. Is he living in a cave? Don't know. A hut? Don't know. Under a tree? We don't know. But he's all by himself. It'd be like being in prison with no fellowship whatsoever. So he's done what God asked him to do, and now God says basically, hang out here, twiddle your thumbs and do nothing. And he's there for some time. And he's willing to do that. Here, there's no complaint. He doesn't say anything about, really? You're just sidelining me here? I've got nothing to do. There's not a word of complaint. And it's interesting too, does it sound familiar that someone is in the wilderness and God sends them miraculously bread and meat? Sounds just like Moses and Israel In the wilderness, same thing. And God has put him in a place, the only place there, where there was some water. For a lot of us, faithfulness and really having an expectation of simply hope for what God's doing in us or through us in our life sometimes is hard to procure when we feel like God has forgotten us and just set us aside. And guys, for Christians, this could be any one of a number of things. You could have a prolonged illness or sickness. You could struggle with depression or anxiety. Your business could fold. And you know, for a lot of us, we will be struggling on the inside. No one else knows it but us. Right? Because we don't tell anyone. And there's a real temptation for us to feel like I'm all alone. God's forsaken me. I'm sitting on the sideline and nothing's going on. And Elijah is there. And he's there for quite some time until the brook dries up. And again, there's no word of complaint. At this point, he's still faithful. Everything's going great. But that does take faith. It takes a staying power and faith to choose to believe God, I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I trust you. And I'm just going to continue to rely on you for your provision until you show me what the next thing is. Much easier said than done. Well, if you go down to verse 8, verses 8 through 16. The Lord comes to him and says, Get up now, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. So he's going to travel up, and he's going to go across to the coast. Zarephath near Sidon, he meets the widow, who, by the way, doesn't know God has commissioned her. I find that, God says, I've chosen, that this woman's going to take care of you. And he goes up and he says, hey, would you give me some water? Yes, would you give me some food? She's like, we don't have enough. She, she didn't know God had tapped her to be His provider. But He had. So it's not coincidence that this is the woman Elijah sees. And he says that she says this, I've got just enough to make one little meal. My son and I are going to eat it and then we're going to die because there's no food left. Remember, this drought goes through the coast. It's not just Israel proper. It's through the coast. They're not having any crops. This would be like the droughts that sent Abraham or the Jews down to Egypt in the past for food because there's no food locally. It's not growing. So Elijah says to her, hey, do this, make it for me first and then feed yourself. And he says, because the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour, your flour won't be spent, the jug of oil won't empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So she went and did as Elijah said and she and her household ate for many days. Many days could be a couple of years. The drought's three and a half years long. This is some protracted period of time. Jar of flour wasn't spent. The jug of oil did not become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So, on one hand, here you've got a similar scenario with Elijah. He was isolated, doing nothing, but now he's got companionship. He's in a house. He's interacting with the widow and her son at least. He's sort of back in civilization. But look where God put him. Does this make any sense? So if I'm running from an enemy, I'm going like he does initially, away from the enemy. But where has God put him now? He's put him in the enemy's backyard. Remember, uh, Baal, the king of Sidon, is also the king of Tyre. He's the king of Phoenicia. And remember that the worship of Baal had been imported from Sidon, Zarephath's backyard. He has put Elijah right in the place from which the worship of Baal had come, from which Jezebel hails. What do you think he's thinking as God sends him to Zarephath where Baal worship started? I wonder what Ethbaal would do if he found out Elijah was in his backyard. Because they've got no rain either. So the God that exported the worship of Baal, that's where Elijah's at. And again, there's not a word of complaint. And he's there for some prolonged period of time. He's not doing anything other than eating and drinking and the normal affairs of life, just like you and I would. But he's doing so in the enemy's backyard. Could you imagine if you were a Jew in World War II working in Hitler's office? Or something like that. That's what this would be like. Sort of like, Lord, are you sure? There's not a question. Nothing's raised. He simply does it. He goes and he's faithful. By the way, before we move on, how do we do... You guys ever had situations where you're simply in the company of people you know that they don't like you and you might not like them either and yet you've just got to hang out? you got to endure those times and are we able to do that? And you wonder, you know, what what happens if something goes south and God keeps you there anyway? And you're like, well, I guess I've got to trust God for this too. That's what Elijah did again. The last and certainly the most spectacular and memorable of what Elijah does is the contest with the prophets of Baal. This starts in chapter 18. So after the many days with the widow, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The famine in Samaria was severe. Skip down to verse 17. Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is it you? you troubler of Israel, and that you're the guy that's kept the reign, you've troubled Israel. Elijah answers, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel near the coast, and the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel. They gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel, Elijah came near to the people and he said, and this is just like Joshua in Joshua 24, Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people don't answer anything. But it's just, don't be double-minded. Make up your mind. So, Elijah says, this is the contest where both the prophets of Baal and I were going to do the same thing. We're going to present an offering and the God who answers by fire, He's God. And they say, great, sounds good. So the prophets of Baal, they they prepare an offering. They cut it up. They put it on the altar. There's wood under it. And they start calling out to Baal. And this goes from the morning until the afternoon. And Elijah chides them. He's like, you know, maybe, maybe Baal doesn't hear you. They're jumping, they're dancing, they're praying, they're yelling, they're cutting themselves, the blood is flowing, and nothing's happening. So finally, the text says, by the time the evening offering would be occurring in Jerusalem, Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. So he presents, he cuts up the cow, he puts it on the altar, he puts the wood under it, and it's an old altar that had been used to Yahweh in the past. And then he has a trench dug around it, if you remember. And he has three times large amounts of water poured over the offering so everything is absolutely soaked, soaked and wet. And then this is what he says. He prays. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, that I'm Your servant. In other words, what I've spoken, I've only spoken because God has said to. And I've done all these things at your word. In other words, you're in control. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And listen to the reason he says this, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. So do this so they know Baal's not God, Yahweh is God. And that you have turned their hearts back, back to himself. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, this would have been fairly startling, wouldn't it? This would have happened right in front of your eyes. It be sort of like lightning. By the way, did you guys storm? I think it was Friday night, maybe Thursday. What was the big? It was huge. I was on my porch and I saw a lightning strike. It would have been in West Topeka. And you know how it, uh, there was a lot of cloud-to-cloud lightning, which was lovely, but this thing struck, and it just kept channeling energy into this one bolt of lightning. It was one of the loudest things I've ever heard, and it just rumbled for 20 to 30 seconds. And you think, it doesn't say it's lightning in the text, it says it's fire, but what would that look like for that thing to be coming down right in front of you? It would have been fairly spectacular. Uh, let's see, where am I? Oh, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. They get it. We get it. Yahweh's God. He's God. So they seize the prophets of Baal and they slay them there at the brook Kishon. So here, it's Elijah, verses 450 or verses 950. He's all alone. You you talk about singular faithfulness again. This isn't just in the court of the king. He is surrounded by his enemy and by people who don't know which end is up. Or as it says of Jonah and the Ninevites, which is their right hand and which is their left? Morally, these guys are out to lunch. It's just Elijah. And fire comes down from heaven. And by the way, do you remember in the life of Moses, that guys had risen up to say, Moses isn't your leader, we are. And one of the things that happened, the earth swallowed one group, but fire from heaven came down and consumed the others. And that's just what happened here. And it was proof in both cases Yahweh is God and Elijah is his spokesman, just like Moses had been. So you've got this outstanding element. This is Elijah at, at the peak, right, of his life. It's like, if that was me, Lord, take me now because it doesn't get any better than this. Years ago, Kathy and I read a, an article. A Christian brother in another state had been preaching the gospel on stage and he had a heart attack and he dropped over dead right in front of everybody. And Kathy's, Kathy's first, she said, oh, his poor wife. And my first thought was, what a way to go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this would have been the time to go because it changes. It, it's going to shift significantly. So this is the high water mark. This is courageous faithfulness. In, in every one of these, so it's still and quiet, and I'm on the sideline, but I'm in the court of the king or it's me against the rest of the world. This is courageous faithfulness. I mean, this really is Christ-like. And if you just think of some points and counterpoints with Jesus and Elijah speaking the truth to authorities, kings, and priests. They both do. Trusting God and living with God in the wilderness. Think of Jesus in the temptation account. Facing all their enemies alone on a hill. That's the crucifixion. And winning. That's resurrection. Elijah and Jesus. This is Christ-like faithfulness. And again, it's not the norm for us. It's not the norm for us. But we get ready for times that require great courageous faithfulness. Guys, by the day-to-day faithfulness we practice all along. You know, if you practice your instrument every day when it's time to perform, you're ready. If you don't pick up your instrument and someone says, hey, can you come play this song, you won't be ready. And the same is true in the arena of faithfulness. So, that's the high side of Elijah. Now there's another side to Elijah's life. And we're learning this, the negative lesson that we don't want to follow. And you know, we said, if you remember at the beginning of this series, some of the villains look better than the heroes. And some of the heroes have elements that look like villainy, not faithful. And that's true of Elijah here. So, the great victory, the priests have been slain, God's good. And I'm his spokesman. I'm vindicated. What happens next? So it Eli- hasn't rained for three and a half years. So Elijah tells Ahab it's going to rain. God said the rain stops. God says, I'm going to send rain again. It's going to rain. So he tells Ahab, you better leave now because it's going to rain so hard you won't be able to get through in your chariot. So he prays, if you remember seven times, tells his assistant, hey, look at the sea. Do you see anything? Finally, yep, a little cloud comes up. Well, pretty soon it's raining and not a little but a lot. And Ahab's getting back to Jezreel where Jezebel is and God supercharges Elijah. I don't know what this would have looked like. Maybe a cartoon. You know, this guy, it says he girds up his loins, you know, pulls up his robe, tucks it in and he outruns the horses and the chariot. What did that look like? (laughs) It sounds like a kid's cartoon, but it really happened. So he gets there. So this is right after the greatest victory he'll ever see, right? And historically in Israel, this is a high water mark, right? God's showing them, I'm Yahweh, you can trust me. Make up your mind. So this is chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. So Ahab gets home in Jezreel and tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. How he killed her prophets. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah there in the same town again, Jezreel saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, now, think for just a second. She is making a, a threat. She is swearing by gods that have just been proven not to exist. And on that basis, she is threatening Elijah's life. How fearful should he be? Not very, right? But how does he respond? Look at verse 3. He was afraid. He rose. He ran for his life. So he's up in Samaria. He comes down to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, he's come through Israel, through Judah. Beersheba's down in the deep south. And I think his servant's already worn out. He can't keep going. He's worn his servant out. But he's not done running away yet. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a a broom tree. And a broom tree is really a big shrub. and It it has flowers and it's big and it would provide a nice amount of shade. And he asked that he might die. So he says to God, under the shade of that tree, I want to die. He says, it's enough now, Lord. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. He lay down and slept. Under the broom tree. And two points here. Does this sound familiar to you? That a prophet is discouraged and says, "Lord, just let me die under the shade of a plant." This is Jonah chapter four. See, and part of what's happening, you're already getting clues here. Remember Jonah in Nineveh? God does. Uh, Jonah doesn't want God to save the Ninevites. So in Jonah, God is doing something that Jonah doesn't want Him to do. So he's frustrated with God and he says, I want to die rather than see these pagans come to faith in you and be saved. Well, here, Elijah is discouraged in what God didn't do. Now, by the way, this isn't absolutely plain in the text, and I'll I'll, uh, mention this here and again in a minute, but we need to read in a little bit to figure out what's going on for Elijah. Right? Why does he say now, he's afraid, we know, but why does he say, I'm no better than my fathers, and I'd just rather die? He's discouraged for sure. He's despondent. And I think there's been some coming to grips with his own estimation of himself. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like people before me. And great things didn't happen in their life and I've given it my best and the nation didn't turn and I'm running away afraid for my life. I'm no better than others. This was, I think, a humbling point and a helpful point at that level, but it doesn't stop there. So we know he's worn out and he needs rest for sure. And in case I forget to say this, guys, it's amazing to me that uh, Christians especially, I I think sometimes we major in make-believe, that we make with magical thinking. You know, we are body, spirit, and soul. And sometimes we think if we're God's person doing God's things, you can disregard your body. It's like, well, you can't. Or you can disregard your emotions like you can't. And you know, sometimes the thing that you and I need so that we're spiritually in tune, we just need a good night's sleep. Or we just need a good meal. Or we need to get some exercise to get in the little gray cells feeling a little better. You can't disregard your physical health. Elijah, he's worn out emotionally for sure. And now he's tired physically. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 9 He he continues, oh yeah, the, the angel shows up, says, hey bud, wake up. Gives him some water, gives him some bread, does that twice. And now he goes for 40 more days. He goes down south. In the story it's called Mount Horeb, but that of course is Mount Sinai. So Elijah is going to the same place that Moses got the law from God, Sinai. He came to a cave and lodged in it. And the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, I don't. Elijah's a better man than me, I'm, I'm sure. But what you've got here, this is the wah-wah party. Have you ever had one of those? Wah-wah-wah. God, I've done it right. I've done everything right. These guys are all wrong. I'm your only hope. They want to kill me. Do you have any idea what's going on? Do you see the problem here, Lord? God's not entertaining it, by the way. So God tells Elijah to stand in the cave, in the mouth of the cave, and he says he's going to pass by. So you know the story. First, there's this fierce wind. It pulverizes the mountainside. But it says, but God's not in the wind. And then there's a quake that shakes the very mountain Elijah's in and it says, but God's not in the earthquake either. And then there's fire. And remember, this is the mountain of fire where God came down in fire and met Moses and gave him the law. But it says God's not in the fire either. All these demonstrations of power and God doesn't show up in them. But then you get to verse 13. Elijah hears a whisper. So all the power goes past and then there's a whisper. And this is translated different ways. A whisper, a still small voice. It says, He wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And there came a voice to him and said, And it's the same question. Now, when God asks us the same question, He repeats that question. It probably means the first answer wasn't okay. Right? Probably means the first answer was inadequate. Ask them the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What's going on, buddy? He said, same thing, I've been jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, people of Israel forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And again, and Lord, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Your last man standing, they're going to take me down. What are you going to do then? So at this point, God just says, okay, I've got some things for you to do. I want you to go up, go up to Syria, anoint a new king, Hazael, go down to Israel, anoint a new king, Yehu. And then by the way, go anoint your replacement because your job is over. Go anoint Elisha. Now, if you've read the story, you know he doesn't obey. He never does anoint Hazael, and he never does anoint Yehu. And what he does with Elisha is half hearted at best. He's unhappy, he's disappointed, he's distraught, he's discouraged, and this is where he ends in that mindset. Not in courageous faithfulness, but he's ticked with God. God's purposes weren't his purposes. And that's the way his life ends. And I want to look at this in just a couple of different ways. The first thing related to him being worn out, he has hit a wall clearly. There's a a Facebook address on your study sheet uh, to a message, Ligon Duncan, he's a Presbyterian academic pastor, university president, really a sterling, sterling guy. He gave a message on this same passage and did what I thought was a great job saying, it's inferred in what Elijah said on the mountain, but that what he really expected was not just that God would show that Yahweh was God, not Baal, but that there would be this national revival, this national repentance and returning to Yahweh that of course never happens. And guys, it doesn't happen then, and it never happens. And 150 years later, God just wipes out Israel with the Assyrians in 722. What Elijah wanted never happens in Israel. Ever. Never. He's worn out and we know that. And this is the thing we've, you've got to be careful about, right? Uh, where's my head? So you know, we, there are times you and I are particularly vulnerable. So he's vulnerable after a great success that doesn't come out fully the way he thought it would. You know, he looks at life and he thinks, Lord, I thought you were doing this and you didn't. Have you ever done that? Have you ever explained to God how things are and how they should be? Right? Guys, I'll bet three-fourths of my frustrations in life are that God's not doing what I thought He would. What I know He should if He was taking good advice and good counsel. And that's where He's at. So he's been courageous in faithfulness, but now he, he's distraught because God didn't do what he thought God was doing. And he can't get out of his own depressed mindset that, God, you should have done this. That's why God asks him twice, but what are you doing down here? I didn't call you down here. What are you doing down here? You know, honesty would have been, I'm really ticked. I'm frustrated. I can't believe you didn't do that. That would have been honesty. Honesty. But he's playing the pity thing. Wah, wah. I'm your only hope and they're, they're trying to kill me. We've got to be particularly careful at strategic times after great victories, after really hard to take defeats, you think business loss, relationship troubles. This could be any one of a number of things. But there are times when your faith and mine is particularly challenged and you've got to be careful where you let your head go and the accusations towards God, or the assumptions we make in those times, we have to be very, very careful. So we know Elijah feels like he's done everything that was humanly possible. And do you notice he repeats twice, I, I alone am left? That was absolutely not true. In fact, if you read the narrative Elijah's in, it keeps repeating, this prophet came up and said this, that prophet came up and did that. He's not alone. And in God's intercourse with them, God tells them, by the way, I have 7,000 in Israel that don't worship Baal. You're not alone. One of the things we've got to be careful of, and by the way, this is where healthy relationships with other Christians comes in. You know, if I see someone and they look despondent, I might say, how are you doing? And I know there's a problem, right? You know, some of you are not good at hiding that you have a problem. Did you know that? Naming no names. But that's an invitation to tell somebody else, I'm discouraged, I'm, dis- I'm disgusted, whatever. So that somebody else is in there, what that does is it keeps me from seeing life as if it's only me. It's only me. Life is all about me, and no one else knows all the things I've gone to, all the troubles I've had. And really, it's me, 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 me. And that's where Elijah's at. And he's discouraged. He needs to be able to to tell the truth. He doesn't to God. And we need to be able to have other people that at least will ask us the question or that we're asking them the question, what's going on? What's going on? He doesn't have that. So that's a dangerous place for faith. So on the front end, what you see, God deals with him so kindly, it's great. God is so merciful and so gracious to Elijah. So here's this man essentially accusing God. And God's just so gracious to him. And first, he sends the angel that feeds him. So Elijah can get down to where he wants to meet God at the law. He says to God, I've performed. You haven't performed. I've done what I was supposed to do. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. That's the law. You remember at Sinai. If you do this, then I will do that. So first, God's just gracious. Gives him some rest. Gives him a happy meal. And, and he runs down south with his Wheaties in his belly and his breakfast. You know, when I used to come home, if one of my girls was distraught or appeared to me to be out of sorts, if I was thinking, I wasn't always thinking, but if I was thinking, I would sit down and I would simply say, tell me every little thing. Uh, you know, clearly something's wrong. Just, just uh, I've got time. I'm just going to sit down. Just tell me every little thing. What's bugging you? What's going on? Just let me know. That's what God's doing with Elijah. But Elijah doesn't respond in the way that actually would have been helpful to him. Tell God every little thing. Elijah pours out his heart. He says, I'm your last man. Now guys, why does God, in response to this, why does He send the wind and the quake and the fire, but He's not in them? So think about this for just a minute. I'm sure you guys all know this already. I probably don't even need to say it, do I, Rick? We should just close here. But for anybody that hasn't read this before, Uh, Basically, God's saying to Elijah, if I need something done, I can do it. I don't need you. you. You keep saying you're the only one left. I don't need you. I need something done. i got all the power in the universe. I could pulverize the mountain you're in right now. I've got fire. I've got quake. I control everything. And if I want something done, guess what? It gets done. I'm not dependent on you. And guys, God isn't dependent on you or me for Anything. And he never misses anything in his will. He never does anything wrong. Every time you and I throw a pity party or accuse God, which we should be honest about, by the way, when we do, don't say we're not doing that, we're missing it because God can't do anything wrong. God can't err against you. He can't sin against you. He can never do anything except what's absolutely right. It's impossibility. But that's where Elijah is right now. God hasn't done it right. He's ticked at him. So God shows, if I want something done, I can do it. But then there's that still small voice and it's an invitation to Elijah. Elijah, tell me what's going on. But Elijah just repeats the same thing. So God says, okay, basically we're done here. You're done as my servant here. I just want you to go take care of these things because then I'm going to take you home. Because basically your courageous faithfulness, it has faltered after the great victory and you're not able to keep going faithfully to be my representative. So he doesn't finish well. Now, you remember Isaiah 55 um, where God says through Isaiah, your thoughts aren't my thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. You know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. It's like we're on the earth, we're like ants, you know, on the ground. We're looking at our universe and we think we understand things. And God's like, no, He's the eagle above. He sees everything. Perspectives, everything. And Elijah doesn't get that. And he needs to, and we need to. That it's not all about us. God, God is blessed to bring us into His plans And let us participate in what our Father is up to. But He doesn't need any of us. His will is not contingent on you and me being faithful. We have the opportunity to participate. That's what we get. If we make too much of ourselves, we're subject like Elijah to fall out because life doesn't come out the way we thought it would or or we, we knew it would. If we make too little of being faithful we're not part of what God wants us to be part of. Not because He needs us, but because it's an invitation to participate in what He's doing. So we want to be careful about our own plans and how we see this thing. We don't want to fall. So Elijah, great example of faithfulness in courageous settings, but a terrible example of the aftermath. Now his story doesn't end there, thankfully for him and for you and me too. So if you go to Luke 9 in the New Testament and you're skipping forward about 800 years, remember the account of the Transfiguration? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and He's transformed before them. And the guy that looked like just the dusty son of a carpenter, he's now this glorious, magnificent appearance of God the Son on earth. And you remember who shows up with Him? Moses and Elijah. Isn't that interesting? Now, why are Moses and Elijah there? Remember, because they say, the context says, they were discussing with him, in the Greek, the word is his exodus. I'm not sure how all the English translations render his exodus. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going back to heaven in victory. Just like God's exodus of the people of Israel. Victoriously. So, there's Moses the lawgiver. Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents who? The prophets. The law and the prophets. Now, if you were choosing a representative for the law, could you choose anybody but Moses? No way. But if you're choosing a representative for the prophets, would you choose Elijah? No way. I'm thinking Isaiah might be at the top of the list, maybe Jeremiah, you know, Daniel or Ezekiel, right? But God puts Elijah there. This guy that did not finish well. So think of this for just a second. You remember, did Moses get to go into the land of promise? Didn't get to go in. Because the law couldn't take them into the land of promise. Only God's grace could take them in. Moses doesn't get to go in. And what does God do before Moses dies? Takes him up onto a high mountain. lets him look out and see all of Israel, doesn't he? And what's happening here? Not in his lifetime. After his lifetime is over, Moses is standing in the land of promise on another mountaintop with God the Son. Isn't that great? The land he couldn't go into in life, he gets to go into there. And what's going on with Elijah? Think of this for just a second. He wanted God to follow through and turn Israel back to Himself. And it didn't happen. And now he's face to face with Christ glorified. And what do we know Jesus is going to do in the future? Romans 11. All Israel will be saved. Romans 11, I think it's verse 26 says. All Israel will be saved, but not through Elijah. Through Christ. And Moses, the law couldn't take Israel into the land of promise, but Christ does. And usually what we find is our desire for our will is too small for what God's doing. And He's not going to give His glory to you and me. He's going to heap all the glory of the universe on Jesus. And that's what we need to do as well. That's part of the lesson. God's merciful to Elijah in life and afterlife. He shows him before the kingdom has come on earth, Elijah's standing there and he sees the one who's going to bring about the repentance and the restoration of all of Israel. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, let me close with this. Um, if you get a chance to read Angus Kinnear's biography, it's it's just a great, great story. And let me tell you about this quote: Watchman Nee, uh, born in 1903, in the uh, uh, revolution under Mao. Uh, You know, this was interesting when we spoke with Jen Chen, our Chinese friend many of you know. Jen told us when she grew up, she didn't know what a Christian was. All she knew was that Christians were criminals. Because in China, the Christians weren't called Christians. They were called criminals for their faith. But they weren't called Christians. Well, Once Mao came in, they had all these accusation parties in which they made people accuse their friends and their family. And so Watchman Nee was condemned to manual labor in Chinese prison camps in 1952 to 1972. He spent the last 20 years of his life in a labor camp in China. And he died in 72. His wife was the only person that was ever permitted to see him. <clears throat> Excuse me. She died before he did. When he died, his niece was notified, your uncle has died. So she got her family and they went to the prison camp to retrieve his body. And they said, you're too late. Because we, uh, we um, burned him up, here are his ashes. She's like, wow. But the guard who came and told her, showed her a piece of paper. He didn't give it to her, he just showed it to her. And the piece of paper had been taken from Watchman Knee's bed. It was under his pillow. And this is what it said. He'd been in a Chinese prison camp for 20 years. He'd had no public ministry. Nobody knew him. Nobody knew what was going on. Do you know what I mean? He was forgotten, sidelined, alone till the day of his death. And his dying words were these. That Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after, should say, three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. In Elijah, you got faithfulness in this courageous setting. In Watchman Nee, you've got courageous faith for the long haul, for the marathon, when it's just me. Nobody else is around to help. But Christ is real. Christ is faithful. I know who He is. I've set my course. There's no turning back. Jesus is King, and that's where I'm going. Yeah. Well, guys, let's, let's rise and read. And the key, we'll read from Psalm 84 as the worship team comes up. Uh, for me, the, uh, uh, one of the key lines in this is that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, whatever loss we feel like we're experiencing in life, God's not withholding some good thing from us. And in life or afterlife, God's going to give you more of the good stuff than you and I know what to do with. Let's read this together. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will bestow favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you.